let's say you're going from about again your optimal of 10 10 degrees celsius in terms of ambient temperature if you get up to let's say 20 degrees which again is a comfortable room temperature or maybe even a little bit cool as a room temperature you might be dropping about 10 to 15 percent in terms of your uh, your performance that triathlon show 138 Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I bring you a live interview on the topic of heat adaptation and racing and performing in the heat with one of my absolute favorite guests. This is actually his fourth episode on the podcast, his third interview. He is of course Stephen Chung professor at Brock University. But before that, a big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. As you know by now, this is uh, very much, hydration is very much relevant for racing, in particular in hot conditions. So it's very timely that we have this heat adaptation episode as well. But you know that a good hydration strategy needs to be based on knowing how much sweat you're losing in the conditions that you will be racing and also what sodium content you have in your sweat or sodium concentration in your sweat. And Precision Hydration has written blog posts on both of those topics and you'll find specific instructions for how to find out. Measure that yourself. I'll link to those in the show notes. And if you are going to do a race in a hot environment, I highly recommend that you do those tests, find out how much you sweat in that sort of environment, and find out how much sodium you're losing, and then tailor your hydration strategy accordingly. And you can do that with Precision Hydration Products Electrolyte Drinks, and you will get your first box for free when you use the discount code that triathlon show, all on word, all caps. This episode is also sponsored by Roka. Roka is the number one brand in the world for triathlon wetsuits, apparel and sunglasses and for tech innovation with these sorts of products. I've mentioned their Arms Up wetsuit technology in the past that gives really unmatched shoulder flexibility. But uh, one thing to keep in mind is that your wetsuit and uh, tri-suit function together. So if you have an arms-up wetsuit, but a restrictive short-sleeved tri-suit, then the tri-suit will also be a limiting factor in shoulder flexibility, not just the, the wetsuit itself. So that's why Roka also designed their short-sleeved Gen 2 tri-suit with a modified arms-up technology pattern to allow flexibility on the swim, but also a comfortable aero position on the bike and without extra material in the armpits on the run. And you can get 20% off your entire order of these highly innovative and technologically advanced products on roca.com when you use the discount code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. So since Steven has been on several episodes in the past, I'll link to all of them in the show notes. They are episodes 74, 75 and 86. I'll just give a quick intro for those of you new to the podcast. By the way, there's a whole archive of podcast episodes waiting for you, so definitely go back and listen to those. 
But Stephen Chung is a professor at Brock University in Canada, where he runs the environment, Environmental Ergonomics Lab that focuses on the effects of environmental stress, like heat, on human physiology and performance. He is a competitive cyclist himself, and he is the co-author of Cycling Science and Cutting Edge Cycling, and he's also the chief scientist at Baron Biosystems, that is the company that has developed the very innovative cycling software and app uh, portfolio of apps called Exert. So you can listen to that on episode 86 in particular, which is a very interesting one. So as I mentioned, this is a live interview. It's recorded over lunch in Lisbon, so there's a little bit of a background noise, but nothing too disturbing. So let's just jump into it. So, special podcast episode today, recorded live in Lisbon, waiting for uh, sardines for me and for repeat guest of the show, Stephen Chung. What did you have? Uh, I'm ordering the paella. Brilliant. And uh, you're just coming back from the Science and Cycling Conference in uh, Nantes in France, so and having a layover here in Lisbon, so it's great to, to meet with you, and we're, of course, taking the opportunity here to record a podcast, and the topic will be what you also keynoted on in, at the conference, uh, heat acclimation and racing and dealing with the heat in general. So let's first start with how does heat impact exercise performance on a general level? Well, actually, first of all, Michael, I'm really happy to be here. Lisbon's been beautiful so far in our short little tour that you've been kind enough to take us. And uh, in terms of the heat acclimation and how heat impacts performance, the first thing is it absolutely does. And even very moderate, what we think of as comfortable room temperatures, say 20 degrees, already is going to impact performance so if you want the absolute best performance you want to be competing or training in a relatively cool environment around 10 to maybe at most 15 degrees celsius um, the really neat studies have been done looking at marathons from all around the world at different times of the year and multiple years and what they have shown is that um, the hotter it gets the, the worst the performance and that holds true for the very elite the, the winners that are just at over two hours and change through to the less fit and the interesting thing is the less fit individuals as it heats up they become more impaired their times become as a percentage even worse than the really elite people so the big message is that heat absolutely will impact you so don't take it for granted or don't underestimate it and uh, whether you are fast or slow uh, as an athlete you will be impacted but the slower you are the less fit you are the more you'll be impacted. What sort of level of impairment are we talking about here for let's say a normal age grouper mid-packer whether if it's a marathon for example? You might be losing let's say you're going from about again your optimal of 10 10 degrees Celsius in terms of ambient temperature. If you get up to, let's say, 20 degrees, which again is a comfortable room temperature, or maybe even a little bit cool as a room temperature, you might be dropping about 10 to 15 percent in terms of your uh, your performance. And that's for probably the age groupers uh, in the audience. Uh, for the really elite people, they might be impaired less, maybe 5 percent, because uh, they're just fitter and they're finishing in a faster time anyway. 
And uh, what about cycling? Are there studies that have been done in cycling? Is it uh, as big uh, a detriment to be cycling in the heat? That's a really interesting question. Cycling probably is different than running because cycling, even uh, at a moderate speed, you're going much faster than the typical runner. So there's a lot more convective airflow, and that's going to help you cool off. That's also going to help you evaporate the sweat. Uh, so actually cycling, you can get by in competing in a much hotter environment because even if there isn't any wind, you are generating so much air velocity around you that you're not going to be impacted as much in the heat. And that's why you see in the uh, in August and uh, the Vuelta España, uh, where it can be just scorchingly hot of 35, 40 degrees Celsius in Spain, that you know, they can still really handle it because they're going at 40 kilometers an hour, whereas you know, even a really fast, fastest marathoners are going at 20 kilometers an hour. So wind speed exponentially increases the cooling and uh, so cycling yes you can get by with a lot hotter environment than you might be comfortable with cooling the ca the difference though is or the things the caveat is that if you are climbing if you're say climbing a big mountain you're going a lot slower and uh, you you're kind of reduced to almost running speed in a sense so you can be impacted by the heat much more if you are climbing and uh, so what about, what is it really that happens physiologically that uh, causes us to slow down in the heat? There's a huge variety of ways. And in 2004, my late colleague Gord Slievert and I published a kind of a review looking at many of the different aspects that, that um, the physiology that you can be impacted. So everything from um, when you're hot, you're brain is simply not able to recruit muscles nearly as well and or as as intensely so there is a neuromuscular impairment uh, because you are sweating you are dehydrating more so there's a cardiovascular impairment there is also because your skin blood flow increases a huge amount in the heat to try to get rid of that heat you now have a lot of your blood being diverted away from your muscles uh, and going to your your skin instead for heat dissipation. So it's all those factors combined together. And it's also a perceptual thing too, and that's one of the newer areas that a lot of people are looking at, how heat impacts both your cognitive functioning, your perception, and therefore your motivation and willingness to exercise hard. I bet that Samuele Marcoda has done some uh, great research on that, uh, the, our guest in episode 17, and I think we mentioned that a little bit in that interview, so I recommend that the listeners go and listen to that, or a lot of other things than, than heat as well, but that perception of effort and how it is important for performance, whatever is causing the perception of effort to increase. But no, knowing that now, why we become slower as, uh, as it gets hotter, how can we deal with it and, and kind of mitigate the effects Probably the best long-term uh, effective solution is really to adapt the heat and to adapt the heat slowly. So, uh, and that was a big review and meta-analysis that my colleague Chris Tyler and myself co-authored in 2016, looking at all the all the. We took over about 90 studies throughout the years and looked at their the effect of heat adaptation on performance of different kinds and we looked at at uh, everything from the f is there a dose response is it the 
Is it a short-term heat adaptation? Is it effective? Is a long-term adaptation better? Uh, we also looked at whether there is a kind of a magnitude of response, both in performance and in also the two main kind of classic um, adaptations of core temperature, your thermal ability, and also, uh, also your ability to uh, have a lower heart rate. And the main thing we found was that, um, yes, there is absolutely an improvement in performance over the course of adaptation, that the, um, the amount of adaptation you can get uh, is effective, even in a short-term adaptation of maybe four to five days. But the um, longer you can do it, up to two weeks or ideally even longer, the better you're going to be in all of your physiological symptoms and also all of your uh, actual performance. So a little is good, but the longer you can become heat adapted, the better you're off you're going to be. And... Uh Talking about that dose and dose response uh, that you mentioned, what, how, how big a dose is required? Is there a minimum level of temperature that is required for you to actually adapt to the heat? Uh, yeah, I, there's, that evidence is a little bit more vague because so many of the studies uh, use, use pretty extreme heat. Um, very few of the studies actually look at uh, passive heat adaptation of exercising or sorry not using exercise at all but being in a sauna or uh, or being in a, a hot bath um, that part is a little bit less known the effects of passive heat adaptation but what we what we would say is the main thing isn't so much the ambient temperature itself is really getting your core body temperature elevated and sustaining it for a good period of time of ideally at least an hour to an hour and a half a day and uh, because what you want to do is you want to stimulate all of your physiological symptoms to adapt one of the big things is your sweating rate so that you can have that increased evaporative um, evaporative cooling and we know that the longer you can uh, get your body warm the better off you're going to stimulate all of those systems to respond. So there's a number of strategies that you can use to to affect this. You can uh, obviously exercise in, indoors um, to and maybe not even have much of a fan on so that you are exercising, generating a lot of heat and uh, and minimizing the heat heat dissipation so that your core temperature is going at a cool or sorry it's heating up at a at a higher rate than you would be if you're riding outdoors so that's one way you can do it without necessarily finding a lab that has an environmental chamber or or putting your bike inside a a hot tent or a sauna the other thing you can do is uh is you may go out and and start exercising whether it's running or cycling and and after, let's say, an hour, hour and a half, when you're already warm from exercise anyways, um, and this is especially effective if you are going to be doing intervals. You want to do your intervals in the coolest kind of environment you can to maximize that muscular and, and physical stimulus. But 
then afterwards, if you're going to continue on and do an endurance or a tempo effort, whether again running or cycling, one thing you can do is go and put on extra clothes and, and keep riding for another hour, hour and a half, or put on some more clothes when you are running and keep that body temperature high over that sustained period. And that's a that may seem like a poorer person's version of heat adaptation, but really the main thing you want to do is keep your body temperature up, and it's a very effective way of doing it. And there was actually a nice new study that came out uh, this year from the University of Oregon, and they showed that just that simple act of putting on more clothing um, you know, will not be as effective necessarily as as exercising in say 30 degrees or 35 degree heat in terms of heat adaptation but it will get you most of the way there that's really interesting and uh, do you know like how how long of the way will it get you or will either one of them get you like you can't i guess mitigate all of the detriments but but how much benefit can you derive from using these strategies I think, again, these simple basic strategies will get you most of the way there. The ideal is to be in an environmental chamber like I have in my lab and you know, set it to 30, 35 degrees and exercise there for an hour, hour and a half a day. Obviously, most people don't have access to that. So I would say these kind of, um, kind of heat adaptation hacks will get you probably about 80% there. You might have to you know, have a longer... Um, heat adaptation period to get the same effects but I think it'll get you pretty close to there. And and how much will that benefit you in your racing? How many of those percentage points lost can you regain from from adapting to the heat? Um, to answer that there was a really interesting study done by a group from Denmark and Qatar. It was a collaboration and what they did was they took Danish cyclists and they had them do a a time trial in Denmark when it was five degrees Celsius and they averaged about 300 watts over that that time trial. Then they went to Spain, or sorry, they went to Qatar uh, where it was 30 to 36 degrees Celsius and they trained for two weeks there and then they tested them over, you know, when they first arrived, did a 43 kilometer time trial there. Uh, then at one week in and two weeks in and they found of about a 15% decrement in their time trial time and their power output when they first arrived but then after about two weeks they regained to pretty much about 98% of their their baseline when they were doing the time trial back in Denmark so the main thing that study shows is that yes there is absolutely an impairment it's probably about 15% in this case and then after two weeks you're going to going to you know mostly be adapted in this case but the interesting thing is you know they didn't you know, ever become better than they were uh, back in Denmark. So, which highlights what we originally talked about, that you are still going to be impaired. You're never going to be as good in the heat as if you were doing the same effort in a cooler environment. The, the question you may now be wondering is, well, well, I've become heat adapted. Well, is it kind of like altitude training? Do I come back to sea level with altitude training and, and compete better? You know, in this case, do I become heat adapted and I go back to a cool environment and maybe now I have more blood volume, more plasma volume, maybe that's going to help me. Uh, that same group took those Danish cyclists back to Denmark 
and what they found was no effect when they were doing the time trial back in the cool environment they they maintained their wattage at about the same 300 watts so what that really shows is that heat adaptation is really specific to the environment and it doesn't seem to be an ergogenic aid for competing in the cooler environments mm, that's really interesting so my next question then would uh, would be to if you have let's say you're, you're planning to do a two or three week adaptation period before a hot race then do you need to take things like the extra stress that heat imposes upon you into account like if it's your taper period before Kona or something like that how how do we deal with that yeah that's again an excellent question uh, you you don't want the added stress of of that heat adaptation at the same time as your taper because you know you're trying to reduce overall stress on your body so if i was advising people getting ready for something like kona i would have that heat adaptation period well beforehand and uh, have them you know adapt let's say if you're going for kona maybe between six weeks out to to uh to three weeks out maybe have your adaptation period then and then as you start your taper you once you're heat adapted you don't have to be every day training in the heat to keep that adaptation just by maybe one day to two days of fairly mild heat exposure while you're exercising you can maintain that heat adaptation pretty well so uh, I would recommend, you know, again, six weeks to maybe three to two weeks out, have that be your heat adaptation period. And then after that, maybe just scatter in one or two of those days where you have that little bit of stimulus. And I would, again, do it the simple way of whether you're training indoors or whether you are uh, just putting extra, extra clothing on for a couple of rides to maintain that stimulus. And what about those 63 weeks out when you do the the actual heat adaptation protocol? You want at that point as well to get in the quality training, some intervals. Would you do them, as you said before, in a cool environment and then try to tuck on the heat adaptation after that? Or what's the strategy there? I would really advise going, doing your intervals, your key quality breakthrough workouts in a cool, comfortable environment because you want to maximize that physical training and you're simply not going to be able to do it in the heat. I would focus my heat adaptation kind of process on, again, if, you're, if you've done your uh, hard efforts in the first half of the ride and then you're just going to be riding easy for uh, an hour afterwards, I would take that time to put on extra clothing and just do that easy ride then. Uh, or if I know I have a endurance day, I would you know, spend my time on, uh, again, maybe wearing extra clothing or maybe do that endurance ride, part of it indoors, again, with less cooling to maximize that. And I think that would be the most effective to to not combine the intensity with the heat adaptation. And uh, some people might, uh, might have workouts or training plans where their hard days are just hard. There is no endurance tucked onto the interval. Is it important to actually be doing some heat adaptation every single day of that period so that they would have to modify their plan and add that extra endurance after the hard intervals or can they just stick to their schedule and skip that harder day uh, from the heat adaptation and then do it the next day on their endurance day instead? 
I think because, um, you know, if, again, as the Kona example, maybe six to two weeks out, that's a four-week period. That's much longer than, you know, most lab studies, which are only two weeks. So I think if you have that f- luxury of planning over four weeks, you, c- you don't necessarily have to exercise in the heat every single day you can get by with you know every other day or or maybe even you know every three maybe four times a week instead so no i don't think you during that induction period of heat adaptation you don't necessarily need to do it every single day and i would definitely avoid doing it on the really hard intense days what about other strategies? So, so we now co- covered the heat acclimation, and uh, and you mentioned that that's the the big one by far. But there are other things we re- read about uh, slushies and uh, and clothing that can help you perform well on race day in hot environments. Uh, what other methods and strategies can people use? The first thing I would do is uh, wear light and and uh, light colored clothing. So don't go with your all-black kit uh, for for race day. Um, you know, I think I think just a simple absorption of uh, of heat from dark clothing that's probably going to be a little bit of a factor. Um, again, cycling. The main thing would be staying hydrated uh, because it's all about the run. A lot of times in triathlon, you want to make keep yourself in the best condition for those race winning efforts when you are in the final leg of the competition so um you know and again as we talked about you have a fair amount of cooling anyways from the from cycling where you're going at high speeds so it's not as much of a concern but it's really all about the run so in the run ideally it would be a, a light weight and also a light colored singlet that you'd be wearing uh i would also wear a some kind of a cap and to keep the sun out of your your head and also the other big benefit of a cap is at aid stations you can be pouring water over it and that that uh, hat is going to keep that water near your head and it's going to uh, help with the evaporation so i think those are very simple strategies that you can do uh, most triathlons are so long that you know the concept of pre-cooling which you know rowers might employ or cyclists during a single time trial might employ i don't think they really come into play because you're swimming in a often in a uh, relatively cooler uh, water temperatures anyways so uh, I think it's really those simple things of of um, if you're at aid stations pour water over your head ideally wearing a cap to keep that water near your head uh, pour it over your torso those are the ways to really maximize the heat dissipation yeah I've, I've used uh, sponges in the past in t2 that I have that I have soaked with water with cold water and then I uh, when I get uh, out from the bike and and onto the run i grab those sponges and stick them into my tri suit and run with them it's not perfect because the water it it does heat up so it's not really super cold but but at least perception wise i think that's something that can can help uh, one one follow up on the cap question uh, does it uh, make a big difference to have a cap versus a visor that's a sort of a pro tip that i've heard of that the, the visor itself doesn't protect as much from the heat as a real cap that's covering the head 
I would just uh, intuitively agree with that because, as I said, one of the big advantages with a cap is you can be pouring water over it and and with a cap with fabric over your scalp, it's going to keep that water over uh, over your scalp as opposed to a visor where you're not going to have that. And uh, so, yeah, I would certainly go with a lightweight kind of tech fabric kind of cap that that you can keep the water kind of cool or near your head for helping evaporation brilliant and for the sake of completeness because we didn't uh, actually mention this directly before uh, what would the physiological effects be of uh, heat adaptation we mentioned what the the reasons that we perform worse in the heat are so are they just the reverse and if so can you repeat them the the big classic symptoms of heat adaptation is that your core temperature at rest and during exercise is lower so you are not near as you know a dangerous or critical threshold in which you're going to be running into trouble uh your heart rate is also generally going to be lower and that's again because you have increased plasma volume and so your heart has more blood to circulate all around to your skin and your muscles so it's not as stressed and so therefore the heart rate is lower and with time also your sweat rate increases quite dramatically and also your sweat electrolytes tend to become more dilute and lower so you overall you may not necessarily be losing more electrolytes but uh, because the body is has learned to kind of conserve and and reabsorb more electrolytes with the higher sweat volume so those are the three main physiological changes Uh, and then there's the big psychological one cognitively and kind of perceptually you just become more comfortable with being in a hot environment and and working hard in a hot environment and i don't think we should discount that either anything else that we should mention in terms of heat adaptation and strategies for dealing with heat Um, I think we've covered most of it. Again, it doesn't have to be super high-tech, but you can get by with a lot of kind of heat adaptation hacks. But the main thing is don't underestimate the impact of heat and also really plan in advance for it, whether it's extra hydration, whether it is, uh, you know, stocking up more at feed stations, and also whether it's uh, just training yourself to experience that discomfort of being in the heat. I think, uh, you know, that will go a long way towards improving anyone's performance. But at the same time, also don't underestimate the risk of exertional heat illness and be aware of that if you if your brain function really starts getting foggy that's one of the classic symptoms of impending heat collapse uh, and you know if you find your gait staggering uh, all over the race course during the run that's another classic symptom it shows your your central nervous system is just shutting down and not being able to you know move uh, properly so Oftentimes, that's really hard to diagnose um, in yourself, but I think that's more of a call to action for a lot of uh, both race doctors and also aid station workers to really be on the lookout for individuals who are experiencing those symptoms. Finally, just coming back from the Cycling and Science Conference, what are one or two interesting 
things that you heard there or learned learned there that the listeners of this podcast might find useful and valuable as well? I think the most interesting kind of um, talk was a kind of almost a, a pulling back from that focus on performance all the time that we have. It was by Curtis Cramblett, who is a physio and bike fitter from San Francisco, and he gave a really nice keynote on rehab and performance and and the different steps in looking at, at rehabilitation from injury. And one of the big things he talks about is really he had a diagram of a pyramid, and at the base of the pyramid is health, in the middle of the pyramid is performance, and the top of it is, is, is sorry, the bottom was health, the middle was fitness, the top was performance. And his point is that many of us chase that pyramid bit at the top of, uh, of performance while neglecting a lot of the basic health uh, of things like proper hygiene, proper sleep, proper nutrition, uh, proper biomechanics uh, when you're running or bike fit, when you're, you're cycling, proper form, when you're strength training, all of those things. Just being able to move in a healthy way and really focus on that first because that's your foundation and then you can build up your fitness and then you can really focus on the performance. So don't just necessarily jump at you know, kind of the next new thing in terms of it's going to give you that one extra percent of performance when you haven't take care, taken care of the 50-60% of that pyramid, which is really proper health, proper motion, proper hygiene, sleep, etc. I think that was probably the most refreshing kind of reminder at the whole conference. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, we can't be reminded of too often. I think that's uh, that's a really important point. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen. This has been super fun to do another live podcast and, and have you on for yet another episode. Really useful. And uh, this topic has actually been requested a lot. So, so it was a great, great uh, opportunity to have you, you here and talk about it since this is uh, right up your alley and your area of expertise. So thank you. I'm really uh, happy to be here in Lisbon and uh, really happy to talk with you again, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. I hope that you enjoyed that interview and found it valuable. I've gotten several requests for this uh, topic already, so it was great that Stephen emailed me and uh, and said that he was going to have a layer in, in Lisbon and we met up and could do this podcast episode with him. I know nobody better to talk about the topic of heat adaptation than Stephen. Some of my key takeaways from this episode is that first... If you want to perform in a hot race, and remember that even 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit, can lead to a 10 to 15% performance detriment compared to a balmy 10 degrees Celsius, then the key really is to be heat adapted and have that in your training as well. Uh, Other acute things that you can do in racing, they can help, but uh, the heat adaptation itself is the most important thing. It doesn't, however, work like altitude training, which is something that for a while at least I thought it might based on some early uh, pilot studies, I think. Uh, With that, I mean that you can't just do heat adaptation protocols and then expect that in moderate temperatures you will have a, a benefit like you would by training at altitude and then going down to race at sea level and and you would be much fitter for various physiological reasons. 
heat adaptation works in a way that it minimizes your losses when you are racing in a hot environment. So, so that's another thing to keep in mind. And finally, also pre-cooling is something that there has been a fair amount written about in the endurance space in, in recent years. And I guess it's running in particular. But as Steven said, that's not really relevant for triathlon because we have our own pre-cooling, which is uh, uh, up to 3,800 meters of swimming. So that, uh, that goes a long way to make sure that you're pre-cooled, even if it's a, a fairly, fairly warm water temperature. So to get all the details and the notes from this episode, as usual, you can go to thattriathlonshow.com or just click the link in the episode description. And speaking of heat, I also want to remind you that uh, I have a training camp in the Algarve in uh, southern Portugal coming up. On the 20th to 27th of October 2018, I will link to that as well. If you listen way in the future, I will do these camps uh, a few times per year. That's the plan at least for now. So check out scientifictriathlon.com, click through to training camps and see when the next one is coming up. And uh, I also want to send a big, big shout out and thank you to everybody who's been rating and reviewing recently. I've seen a, a big surge in that actually, and I really appreciate it. I've also got a ton of feedback on Facebook Messenger and on email, etc. And it really means a lot to me. So I want to thank all of you who've done that. You know who you are. Uh, so uh, big, big thanks and shout out to, to all of you guys. Finally, big thanks also to our sponsors. First, we have Roka that you can find on roka.com and check out their wetsuits, apparel, tri suits, buoyancy shorts, sunglasses, and use the promo code that triathlon show for all your shopping and you'll get 20% off your entire order, which is massive. And you can trust Roka because they are trusted by athletes like Javier Gomez, Gwen Jorgensen, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, Lucy Charles, and as you can hear, that's a who's who of triathlon, really, and they go with Roka, so that's why I think that you should too, that's why I do. And thank you to Precision Hydration on precisionhydration.com. I have linked to their online sweat test in the show notes, so if you don't want to do the measurements that I talked about at the front of this episode... You can just answer a quick quiz that will take you a few minutes and get a ballpark number for how much you sweat and how much sodium you lose. And that will take you a long way, really, because it is an accurate, a very accurate quiz that they've produced there. So that's a great, great starting point for you when you plan your hydration strategy. And of course, you will need electrolytes to execute your hydration strategy. And you can get your first box of electrolytes on precisionhydration.com using the discount code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.